When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Allison Kosick, sitting in for Julia Chatterley. And here's what you need to know. Patients running dry. Fed Chair Jerome Powell hints at interest rate cuts. Drone down. Iran says it shot down a U.S. aircraft. And Slack makes its market debut today, taking a page out of Spotify's book and will direct list. It's Thursday, and this is First Move. to first move. U.S. stocks look ready to rally amid new hopes for global stimulus. Futures at the moment are pointing to a sharply higher open across the board. With the S&P 500 close to record territory, investors remain in a buying mood after the U.S. Federal Reserve signaled that its next move may be to lower interest rates, perhaps as soon as next month. The Bank of Japan said today that it is ready to provide new stimulus if necessary as well. The European Central Bank said the same thing earlier this week. All the stimulus talk is helping to push bond yields to multi-year lows. The yield on the 10-year U.S. Treasury falling below 2% for the first time since 2016. This happening on Wednesday. Yields are hovering around the 2% mark right now. The U.S. dollar is also falling. Meantime, we're keeping an eye on oil. Oil is posting strong gains after Iran shot down a U.S. military drone near the Strait of Hormuz today. The U.S. says the drone was in international airspace. Iran says the drone was in its airspace. We'll have more on that story later in the show. But first, let's get right to the drivers. It wasn't so much what the Fed said as what it didn't say. The U.S. Central Bank kept rates on hold but dropped the word patience from its statement. Instead, it said uncertainties have increased. That's seen as a signal that a rate cut could be on the horizon. It's all about the tea leaves and Christine Romans is the translator for us this morning. You know, I was reading over the statement one more time, Christine, and there was another sort of uh, trans, uh, translation needed with this statement will act as appropriate to sustain the expansion. To me, that says, yes, we're going to go ahead and cut rates. Yeah, this is a devish central bank. In fact, you're right to point out devish uh, language from central banks around the world trying to keep the expansion alive and battle what could be slowing growth on the horizon. What's ironic to me is that nine months ago, the Federal Reserve was raising interest rates to keep the American economy from overheating. Remember how strong this economy was? Well, the president of the United States came out with his, you know, multi-pronged trade, trade wars here. And in fact, now the president's trade wars doing the job of the Fed by cooling the economy. Now, the Fed is trying to make sure things don't cool off too quickly and trying to navigate here what we call a soft landing. Uh, dropping the word patient was really critical here because the Fed had been not too long ago thinking about maybe they could raise rates. Maybe they would stand pat. Maybe they would lower rates. Now it looks like lower rates are on the horizon here. One interesting backdrop is 
that the president of the United States has been very vocal in his criticism of the Fed, calling it dangerous, calling it loco, saying that the Fed chief doesn't understand, doesn't have the feel of the markets. The Fed chief responded to that criticism yesterday. I think the law is clear that I have a four-year term and I, I fully intend to serve it. Translation, the president's uh, taunts and tweets will not push Jerome Powell out of that job uh, as the shock absorber to the American economy. Remember, the Fed is uh, the Fed chief is appointed by the president, but then serves independently of the White House. Allison. How dangerous do you think this could be for the stock market I'm talking about? So the, there's the expectation of at least one rate cut, but you know how that goes. Uh, right. The fishbowl is brought, the, the fishbowl, the punch bowl is brought over, <laughs> and the thinking is we, we want more and more. So then there's the expectation for two and three rate cuts, and when that may not happen, uh, it potentially could make stocks tank. What are your thoughts on that? You know, it's ironic because you basically had the punch bowl for 10 years, and it was the Fed yeah. trying to slowly take away that punch bowl, uh, and, uh, you know, it, it, and in fact, it really never did. You know, you had a handful of, of rate hikes, but you're looking at rates here just above 2%. The last time the Fed was cutting rates was in 2008, and rates were a heck of a lot higher they were, than they were here. One other point I would say, you know, the markets, you're right, are really betting and banking on uh, a rate cut and quickly. What if that doesn't happen? What if the economic news is, is still strong and the Fed thinks it doesn't have to move? And then there's also this, this outcome, potential outcome. Over the past 25 years, there have been four, what, four cases of rate cutting. Those were for things like uh, the collapse of long-term capital management and an Asian financial crisis and a crisis in the United States. And, I mean, the Fed cuts rates for bad reasons, for, for bad reasons the American economy. The president is still saying that this is the best economy maybe in history. So how do you square this is the best economy in history with cutting interest rates. Cutting interest rates could actually send a signal to global markets that, hey, things aren't great. I, absolutely. You know, there's that, you feel that the Fed is trying to really justify its move at this point, and the question is who's buying that justification. Christine Roman's great talking with you. Thanks. You too. Bye. Moments ago, the United States released its annual human trafficking report. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is due to speak about the report shortly. He and Ivanka Trump, who is an advisor to the president, will be honoring people who have fought against modern slavery. Paula Newton joins me live from the State Department right now. You know, this essentially is a scorecard on countries around the world on what they are doing co to combat human trafficking. Who was downgraded and who was upgraded in this report? You know, this is always such a contentious part of this report. It is a thick tome and the United States says that they do the best that they can throughout their embassies around the world to really collect accurate data. And in that collection this year, they have in fact downgraded four countries uh, to tier three. That's Bhutan, Cuba, the Gambia, and crucially here, Allison, which we will talk about, is Saudi Arabia. We will get to the other downgrades from tier one to tier uh, two. But what I want to explain is what happens when you're in tier three. And normally getting to tier three means this report will have some teeth to it. Now, the president has the discretion. He has the final say. But normally that it means that the country will be sanctioned, that there will be some kind of aid pulled. Uh, and that will be an issue for those countries. As I said, it is contentious in terms of the actual evidence that they gather and where a country falls in the report. I want to point out, and these are going to be interesting for many people, that there were six downgrades from tier one to tier two, and those included Aruba, Denmark, Germany, 
Italy, Poland, and the Slovak Republic. Uh, I mean, Alison, the issue here, this report lays out that they want to know that countries are protecting victims, preventing human trafficking in the first place, and crucially, prosecuting those people. And I can tell you, some people might be shocked that a country like Germany or Italy might fall down into tier two, but the issue here is the prosecution. For instance, in Germany, the report lays out the fact that only 36% of those who were convicted of sex trafficking, for instance, actually got any jail time. And it is the impunity with which human traffickers work throughout the world that the United States is trying to address here. Uh, it's interesting, Allison, that the point that the United States uh, started actually categorizing itself. That started in 2011 when Secretary of State Hillary Clinton uh, was the uh, was in charge here and she decided that the United States would also grade itself. Um, we're going to pause there for a second, Allison. As I see, Secretary Pompeo has uh, come to the podium. We will get his remarks in a few moments. Um, but as I was saying, the United, the United States also controversially does grade itself. The issue here, though, is when you talk about the issues with Donald Trump and those uh, border problems. Many activists uh, who follow human trafficking say that, in fact, uh, the United States policies are not conducive to preventing human trafficking. And, and Allison, having been to those border areas, I can tell you uh, that, in fact, um, what is going on here is there are people that are vulnerable in places like Mexico or Guatemala or Honduras or El Salvador, precisely for the fact that they are being held in certain conditions um, that make them vulnerable to traffickers and make them vulnerable to forced labor and, of course, also the sex trafficking. So a, a lot to get through there in terms of this very meaty report and what's being done around the world to end modern slavery. Yeah, and you make really a really good point there about tying what's happening at the border and what's happening with these new numbers uh, about human trafficking. You know, you've got so many people looking for refuge here in the U.S., but you've got the U.S. because of the administration's policies turning people away. Yeah, and, and, and that... Uh, uh, we're going to pause there, Allison, actually, because we're going to get the remarks from Secretary of State Mike Pompeo himself. Welcome. Let's take a listen. Uh, first, I, I want to welcome all of the... Uh, human trafficking survivors in attendance here today. Uh, you, you are all heroes. Uh, this is a very special morning. Uh, you are all standing up to ensure that no one else suffers the abuse that you endured and we are proud of your commitment and inspired every minute by your courage. Let me also thank uh, advisor to the President Ivanka Trump uh, for joining us here today and for continuing to speak out with absolute moral clarity on the issue of human trafficking. She calls it what it is modern-day slavery. Uh, I'm also honored to welcome members of Congress from both parties. If there was ever an issue that was bipartisan and transacts the politics of the moment, human trafficking is most certainly it. Uh, that's also clear from the attendance of all the living former heads of the State Department's Trafficking in Persons Office from the past two administrations. Thank you all for being here and welcome. And finally, we're glad to see ambassadors and representatives from around the world who have joined us here today. Human traffic is indeed a global crisis and it requires a global response. So thank you all for being here and coming to join us this morning. In, uh, in just a moment, we'll salute those who are leading the fight against human trafficking, our 2019 TIP report heroes. But before we do, I wanna speak for just a moment about why the fight to end modern slavery strikes at the very core of our moral responsibility as human beings. Consider one of the stories documented in this year's report. The story of a woman from Venezuela, who I'll call Melinda, 
After Maduro came to power, Melinda found herself trapped in poverty and desperate to provide for her family. One day, she met a man. She met a man who offered to cover expenses, to travel to Spain, where he promised he would find enough work to send money back home so that she could take care of her family and those around her. He then forced her into prostitution and threatened to hurt her daughter if she resisted. So she stayed silent, and after years and much anguish, she finally was able to get the police, and a raid finally set her free. I wish that I could stand here this morning and tell you that her story is uncommon, but our report reveals the grim reality. There are 25 million adults and children suffering from labor and sex trafficking all over the world, including in the United States, and indeed in this very city in which we're sitting here today. It's a strain. Human trafficking is a stain as well on all of humanity. We detest it because it flagrantly violates the unalienable rights that belong to every human being. Every person everywhere is inherently vested with a profound, inherent, equal dignity. America was founded on a promise to defend those rights, including life, liberty, and the pursuit of justice. But too often we've fallen short, and we cannot fall short on this challenge. Human rights trafficking is not a natural disaster. It's caused by man, and therefore we have the capacity to solve this. And I hope that this report helps each of us know the way to achieve this. You'll see that the focus of the 2019 TIP report is to encourage governments to address forms of human trafficking occurring within their country's own borders. That may seem to surprising to many of you. Indeed, I think one of the biggest misperceptions about human trafficking is it's always transnational. It's not the case. Um, every individual and every individual country must confront this challenge on its own sovereign territory. Because in reality, set traffickers exploit an estimated 77% of victims in their own home country. Human trafficking is a local and a global problem. Shockingly, many victims never leave their hometowns. I think the focus of this report rep appropriately reflects that challenge. National governments must empower local communities to identify and address trafficking specific forms prevalent in the areas in which they live. The report identifies a few success stories too, like Senegal, where the government identified a growing problem of child begging rings, ran campaigns to raise awareness among the public, convicted perpetrators, and provided care to many, many victims. The report commends those countries that have taken action, nations like Senegal as well as Mongolia, the Philippines, Tajikistan, and others. But we also call out those nations that aren't doing enough. Tier 3 designations, the lowest possible designation, were given once again to China, Iran, North Korea, Russia, Syria, and Venezuela, among others. A few countries were added to the Tier 3 list, including Cuba. Some of these governments allow human traffickers to run rampant, and other governments are human traffickers themselves. In North Korea, the government subjects its own citizens to forced labor, both at home and abroad and then uses proceeds to fund nefarious activities. In China, authorities have detained more than a million members of ethnically Muslim minority groups in internment camps. Many are forced to produce garments, carpets, cleaning supplies, and other goods for domestic sale. These designations, tier one, two, three, aren't just words on paper. They carry consequences. Last year, President Trump restricted certain types of assistance to 22 countries that were ranked for Tier 3 in our 2018 TIP report.
That action and the message that flows with it is very clear. If you don't stand up to trafficking, America will stand up to you. President Trump has proven this, and he has mobilized our federal government to make human trafficking a true top priority for the United States. This is highly appropriate. Last October, the president hosted and I chaired a meeting of the interagency task force to monitor and combat trafficking in persons. It was the first time that a president had attended a meeting of that task force in its 19 years of existence. The president that day vowed that he would not rest, quote, until we have stamped out the menace of human trafficking once for all. And he instructed every agency to take on that action. Here at State, we're doing our best to answer that call. We engage in year-round activity with our partners in more than 80 countries to support anti-trafficking programs all across the world. Last fall, the department, with important input from survivors, worked to produce a video about the risks of human trafficking and inform visa applicant of their rights. It's on display in the waiting rooms at most of our embassies and consulates all across the world. And one of our greatest contributions to the anti-trafficking movement is the report we're launching today for the 19th year in a row. I want to thank Ambassador Richmond and his team for leading the efforts to produce this year's report and all the dedication that his team has shown. They spent many long hours making sure that it lives up to its reputation. And now that they've completed their work, it's up to the rest of us to ensure that it doesn't just sit on a dust on a shelf and collect dust. We must remain steadfast in our twin goals of freedom for every victim and justice for every trafficker. I now uh, have the pleasure of introducing someone who shares an unwavering commitment to those two goals. She has valiantly made this issue a priority for the administration, including by attending this event three years running. With that, please join me in welcoming. And you are listening to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo here in the State Department where we are. He is releasing the 2019 TIP report. Uh, he obviously pointed out uh, that they continue to try and protect victims of human trafficking around the world uh, and also encourage governments to prosecute them. What is contentious here is the tiering. There's a tier one, tier two, tier two watch list, and a tier three. And most interesting here, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, in indicating who was downgraded from a tier two watch list two tier three indicated that Cuba was but did not say that Saudi Arabia was as well. Uh, again, this is a contentious document, both within these walls of the State Department, but also outside. And why is that that tier three ranking uh, does end up having teeth in terms of what kind of assistance the U.S. government may give to these countries. And of course, becomes a contentious issue going forward with the United States allies and ally like Saudi Arabia. Aratika Schubert joins us now, who's also been following uh, this report. And you know, Atika, uh, CNN had reporting, reporting that was originally reported by Reuters that, in fact, Secretary of State Pompeo fought to keep Saudi Arabia off a list of uh, countries that recruit child soldiers that is directly related to the conflict in Yemen. Uh, and that was also reported uh, by uh, our sources and Michelle Kaczynski's sources here at the State Department. Uh, you know, this, this is a political document at the end of the day, and he chose to omit the fact that Saudi Arabia on human trafficking has now been downgraded to that tier three level. Yeah, and the reality is that Saudi Arabia has been on the tier two watch list for the last four years running. Uh, and it's only because of a uh, waiver, really, that it hadn't slipped under to tier three in the previous years. Uh, Saudi Arabia has had a long running problem, not only in connection to the conflict in, in Yemen, but also with forced labor, for example, with laborers brought over from many parts of South Asia and Africa. They have a system there called the Kafala system, which, of course, which
which allows for employers not only to um, take control of passports of workers brought over, but that they would actually need to seek the permission of their employers to leave the country. Um, so it's created a system that is ripe for abuse, essentially. And the State Department has been really looking for signs that Saudi Arabia, the Saudi Arabian government in particular, is trying to improve conditions. Is it providing care for victims of trafficking? Uh, is it prosecuting those traffickers? Um, and, you know, last year in the 2018 report, it said only four cases had been prosecuted in Saudi Arabia. It does seem that this year uh, Saudi Arabia has finally fallen into that tier three. Uh, you're right. Secretary Pompeo did not explicitly call out Saudi Arabia just now. Uh, but it is clear that this is a very contentious political issue to see it fall into that last tier. Yeah, and it will now fall on the desk of President Trump and what he decides he's going to do with this. And of course, Satika, all of this coming uh, with the news from the United Nations yesterday that the murder of Jamal Khashoggi was uh, very, uh, that they have the evidence, they believe that it was state-sponsored and that the Crown Prince, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, was likely involved in some way. Uh, you know, before I let you go, Atika, and we parse this report, it may come as a shock to some people that countries like Poland, Italy, and Germany have fallen from Tier 1 to, two, to Tier 2. You know, these are robust judicial systems uh, and policing systems where you think they would be able to have some progress over the years. I, given the fact that you're usually based in Germany, you, you know, what was interesting, and I'm sure you found this in your reporting of the Freedom Project, as I have, is that prosecution is an issue. So in Germany, in, in Atika, they pointed out that only 36%, 36% of convicted sex tra traffickers actually ended up with jail time. And, and that is one of the issues. And speaking to prosecutors uh, myself over the years, it does does tend to be the issue that sometimes they try and apprehend these people and perhaps sometimes do not even charge them with trafficking because they just want to get a conviction and want to make sure that there is some modicum of justice. Uh, do you think these European countries like Italy, like Poland, like Germany will now be paying close attention having been now downgraded from tier one to tier two? they will be. And I think this is clearly a warning from the U.S. Uh, that it is watching these countries. I'm sure there will be a lot of political discussion over this from countries like Denmark, Germany and Italy. Uh, but the reality is, is, as you point out, those are some shocking numbers, uh, you know, to see, to see so few uh, prosecutions and ultimate jail time for traffickers. Uh, and it's something that those countries, the U.S. State Department clearly feels they need to work on them. They need to show that there are improvements. Um, and then they could be moved into that tier one category. But I think there will certainly have political repercussions in those European countries. Yeah, and we will see if we will have any action, a reaction to that today. Atika, I know you will continue to follow that. You continue to watch your CNN as we continue to follow the release of this report. We will have the United States Ambassador on Human Trafficking Issues live exclusively uh, just about a little bit less than an hour from now. Uh, and we will have more news right here on CNN. All right, Paul Newton, thanks so much. You're watching First Move. We'll have more right after this short break. Once again, it is still looking like a very strong start to the trading day here on Wall Street. The S&P 500 could hit record highs for the first time since early last month. Stocks are rallying on hopes for new global economic stimulus. The Fed has signaled that it's ready to cut rates. The Bank of Japan and the ECB also say they could provide further support, too. Okay, here are 
are some stories making headlines around the world. Iranian forces have shot down a U.S. military drone that looks like this one, saying it violated their airspace. But the U.S. says the drone was in international airspace. The incident will further heighten tensions between the two countries. Last week, the U.S. accused Iran of attacking two oil tankers. We're going to have a live report from Tehran later in the show. President Xi Jinping is on his first state visit to North Korea, the first in 14 years by the country's head of state. According to Chinese media, Xi Jinping was welcomed in Pyongyang by 10,000 people waving flowers and chanting slogans, even a 21-gun salute. The visit comes a week before Xi is due to meet with U.S. President Trump at the G20. That's what Saudi Arabia is calling an independent report on the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. The United Nations special uh, official concluded that Khashoggi was the victim of a deliberate premeditated execution. She said there was credible evidence to suggest Saudi Arabia's crown prince Mohammed bin Salman was responsible. In the UK, Sajid Javid has been eliminated from the Conservative Party leadership race. Michael Gove came in second place, just ahead of Foreign Secretary Jeremy Hunt. Boris Johnson is far ahead with 157 votes. Another poll later today will eliminate the weakest candidate. The remaining two will go forward to the final round that will decide the next prime minister in July. Okay, we are just seconds uh, before or minutes before the opening bell. We're going to see how stocks begin. It looks like a strong start for the Dow. The Dow could open as much as 200 points higher. We'll be right back. live from the New York Stock Exchange, and there you go, you're seeing it there, ringing the opening bell today, executives from workplace communications firm Slack, that is going public under the ticker symbol W-O-R-K, work. So no time to slack off here for traders on Wall Street. We've got a busy start to the trading day with all the major averages uh, beginning solidly higher. The Fed's dovish policy statement Wednesday certainly opens the door to a future rate cut. That remains the big driver of investor sentiment today. The S&P 500 begins the session in record territory for the first time in over a month. Okay, let's take a look at the global movers. Shares of Carnival Cruises are lower. The company posted better than expected second quarter results, but it lowered its guidance for the rest of the year, citing a number of factors, including the U.S. move to ban cruises to Cuba. Shares of Darden restaurants are falling as well. The parent company of the Olive Garden also reporting better than expected earnings. But sales came up short, and its forward guidance was weak. Tesla is also trading lower. Goldman Sachs cut its price target on Tesla today. It says, quote, the downward path for shares will continue. Goldman says there's too much uncertainty over future demand for Tesla's, for Tesla's cars. Seeing shares of Oracle higher, the software giant sales and revenues beating expectations in its most recent quarter. Its outlook for future quarters also coming in investor friendly. We're keeping an eye on oil prices.
prices as well. They are rallying after Iran shot down a U.S. military drone today. It's just the latest in a series of incidents that have ratcheted up the tension between the two countries. Taking a look at oil prices at the moment, both Brent and U.S. crude are up sharply. U.S. crude is up now over 4%. We've got Fred Plykin live from Tehran. Um, thanks, for, thanks for hanging out there. I mean, you've been there for days. We had first the attacks on the two tankers and now this attack on a drone. But this drone attack, I would say, is there's nothing subtle uh, about this message coming from Tehran. There certainly isn't anything subtle, and I think, uh, Alison, that the Iranians are meaning for it to be exactly that. Uh, the head of the Revolutionary Guard Corps, which is the unit uh, that was behind shooting down this American drone that was responsible for it, <clears throat> he came out earlier today and he said this is a clear message to the United States that Iran is not going to tolerate anybody violating its airspace and that the Iranians will respond very quickly. The Iranians also saying, and this is probably is also something uh, that potentially uh, will be of interest to the markets as well. The Iranians are saying they don't want an escalation, they don't want a war to, be, to happen, but they also unequivocally said that they are absolutely ready for a war to happen and prepared. Now, of course, this incident, like really a lot of the other incidents that have taken place over the past couple of days, the past couple of weeks, very much in dispute. Iranians are saying that this drone, uh, an American high-altitude surveillance drone, violated their airspace and was then shot down by its anti-aircraft systems in the south of uh, Iran over Iranian airspace. And now the Americans have a very different take on all this. They say that the drone was shot down over the Strait of Hormuz in international airspace and that this was therefore an unprovoked attack. So as you can see, both sides still very much at odds with one another and of course all of this coming in that setting that you had just described where the u.s and iran uh, or, or the u.s blaming iran for those tanker attacks that took place in the gulf of oman last week the iranians saying that it wasn't them and then you had a lot of other little attacks taking place where no one really knows who was behind them. There was a rocket attack yesterday in Basra also hitting a compound that, for instance, Exxon is in. So right now you can feel that in the greater Middle Eastern region, especially in that uh, oil-heavy, uh, important for the oil region of the Persian Gulf, that there is a lot of uncertainty going on there right now, Allison. Yeah, and you're talking about this is a very important region as far as oil transport goes. What could be the U.S. response to a shoot down of one of its biggest drones? Uh, because we're not seeing a huge reaction in oil, but my thinking is if we're going to see this reciprocal yeah. action potentially, what could we see happen with oil prices? It's been very interesting to see over the last couple of days that uh, so far uh, there's been very little in the face, in the face uh, or in the way of U.S. reactions to some of the things that have been happening. They've been blaming the Iranians. The biggest reaction that we've seen from the United States was a couple of days ago when they announced that they would send a thousand extra additional troops here to this region. Now, the U.S. says that that is completely defensive in nature. But one of the things that we also have to keep in mind is that even if this right now doesn't escalate, the fundamental situation that is still in Okay, we've, we've, lost, we've lost Fred Plakin, um, but we thank him very much for his reporting there on this drone attack. Let's move on. Uh, Middies tensions, as you can see, are rattling the commodities markets, but stocks remain on the upswing on rate cut hopes. The S&P 500 is now trading in record territory for the first time in over a month. 
Art Hogan joins me now live. He is the managing director and chief strategist at National Securities Corporation. Great timing to have you on right after the Fed uh, dropping the big hints that we could see at least one rate cut uh, this year. Could be next month. What do you say to that? You know, it's interesting. So the marketplace has really built up a great deal of expectation that the Fed needs to cut rates. And I think that's the wrong way to look at this. Now, the Fed has gone from being on autopilot and hawkish in December to pivoting in January to being patient. And now we're not patient anymore. Now we're leaning towards being dovish. But I think if you look at what drives monetary policy, it should be economic data, how things look in the economy in the here and now, and inflation. So half of that looks pretty good right now. So we've got an unemployment rate that's at a 50-year low. We certainly have jobs numbers that continue to look better, but we saw the weekly jobless times this week much better than expected. So as we look at the prevailing economy, things aren't at a point where we should be using what's what's a very depleted toolkit of monetary policy to ward off uh, a lack of inflation. I think what's happening, though, is the Fed is saying the longer this trade war goes on with China, the more damage to the economy we're going to see. So I think what the Fed is saying is, listen, we don't believe in the trade policy we have. The, the Fed, in large part, doesn't believe in tariffs. But the longer this trade war lasts, the more damage will be done to the economy. So they, they're going to stand at the ready to do this. So let me get this. You don't feel like the, the Fed is justified to cut to cut rates at this point? Not right now. You've got a uh, unemployment rate at 50-year low. Retail sales just came out, and they look spectacular much better than expected. When, uh, we're, we're not in contraction on manufacturing. Um, we're certainly not in contraction in services. The economic data doesn't doesn't point to a cut in rates. Now, that said, if the G20 is a flop and we escalate with China and put a 25% tariff on the, the remaining $300 billion worth of Chinese exports, that will cause a global recession by the end of this year. So the Fed will have to get out in front of that. We're just not there yet. I don't think we're there in July. We'll know a lot more come the July meeting because we'll have the G20 uh, have, have come and gone. We'll know where we are on the path of negotiations. We'll have another GDP number. We'll have another jobs number. So we'll, we'll get a better feeling about the economy, but I just don't think it's time. Market's expecting more than one cut. How dangerous can that be? Well, the, the more you price in, think about it three ways. But first and foremost, the market always gets ahead of itself, both on cuts and on raises. We're never right on, and, and, the, and the dot plot doesn't really help us with that. The second thing is, the market celebrating the fact that we need monetary policy is very counterintuitive. The market, that's like saying, the ambulance got to our house really quickly. Oh, wait a minute, we need an ambulance. That, that's not good. So celebrating monetary policy in the marketplace doesn't last very long and it's not very intuitive. The third thing is what the Fed says and what the Fed does over the last 10 years has been two completely different things. The dot plots have never been right. They're probably going to go away at some point in time. I would listen to more about what action they take in this July meeting is not 100% locked. Okay, not 100%. Art Hogan, thanks so much for your perspective. We'll be watching it along with you. Thank you. Okay, picking up the slack, the firm behind the work messaging tool is making its Wall Street debut. We speak to the NYSE vice chairman on how the exchange is attracting firms that are rushing to the market. back. It's the messaging app that's popular with big business. And right now, Slack is hoping to be a hit with investors. You're taking a look at live pictures of the trading floor here at the New York Stock Exchange. The firm is listing its stock directly on the floor on the New York Stock Exchange. And that is where founders, early investors, and employees are allowed to sell their shares directly to the public instead of the company raising money by selling shares through the stock market in a traditional IPO. 
Claire Sebastian is here to walk us through this story. This is an unconventional way to make a public debut, right, Claire? Yeah, absolutely, Alison. This is definitely not your traditional IPO. This is not a fundraising exercise for Slack. They're not raising any new money. They're simply allowing people who already own shares in the company, be it early investors or employees, to cash out. So what you're seeing there on the floor is the, the designated market maker essentially gathering all the buyer and seller information, and eventually he'll set an opening price. That could take a couple of hours. Spotify, which did the same thing, took until about quarter to one in the afternoon uh, to actually start trading. So we could be in... Uh, for a bit of a, a bit of a long journey here. But this is a company, uh, if you're not one of the uh, more than 10 million people who use it on a daily basis, that really is starting to gain a lot of traction. It's in 65 Fortune 500 companies. So take a look now at exactly what Slack is all about. Slack is on a mission to change the way we communicate at work and do away completely with office email. You have your family emailing you, former coworkers, friends, people you work with today. It becomes just totally overwhelming. Here at CNN, we take bulging inboxes to a whole new level, not to mention the constant meeting makers. It is communication overload, which makes us a prime target for the people at Slack. Slack isn't just about messaging. Everything you do at work, charts, spreadsheets, social media, can be found in one place and compiled by topic. A fancy word for it? Information management. Some people's first reaction to switching to Slack is, oh my God, now there's yet another thing that I have to take care of and respond to and pay attention to. But in the ideal case, we consolidate and replace a lot of those other systems. They don't feel quite as overloaded. Slack says more than 600,000 organizations use its product, but only 88,000 are paying customers. It's not just email. Slack is also trying to bring your video conference needs into its ecosystem. Let's see if I can call Paula. Hi, Claire. Hey, Paula. So yeah, 9 a.m. works. Let's, uh, let's have a quick chat about the show. Video conferencing lets you share your screen, draw on slides, and integrate useful apps like Outlook, Twitter, and Google Drive. The company is going public in a direct listing, meaning that it won't be raising extra cash. There's just one problem. They lose money. Unlike Dropbox and DocuSign, they still lose money. Slack urgently needs to add more paying customers, and it's facing mounting competition from the likes of Google's Hangouts, Microsoft Teams app, and Facebook's Workplace. If you look at the growth characteristics of it, it's really actually pretty impressive. Anything that cuts your email box down to a place where it becomes manageable, I think people will find useful and ultimately will pay for. Is that a huge business? Who's to say? Slack says it's a tool for collaboration, so its product works best when everyone in the office uses it. But sometimes there's no substitute for in-person communication. Claire, stop slacking. You're live in five minutes. So it's not just about productivity, it's pretty addictive. Now, the New York Stock Exchange has set a $26 reference price price for Slack. That is not a guaranteed opening price, but it does give the company a valuation of almost $16 billion. So, Alison, we'll have to see exactly where the market sets the price today. All right, Claire, Sebastian, thanks so much for that great report. All right, let's talk about the growing trend of direct listing with John Tuttle. He is the vice chairman and chief commercial officer of the New York Stock Exchange. I'm so happy to have you on to walk us through this because this really is a new concept for investors, going public but in a fashion that is going direct and not going through the underwriter and et cetera. Walk us through how this came about and is this something that is uh, specific only to the New York Stock Exchange? 
Well, it's a, it's a very exciting morning welcoming Slack as the second direct listing of this size and caliber to come to market. The first one was obviously Spotify last year. And while the direct listing is not going to displace the traditional IPO, it's an interesting new path to the marketplace for companies that meet the profile of Spotify or Slack, where they don't necessarily need capital on the day of their listing, uh, but they want the other benefits of being a publicly traded company. And we do it in a very unique, transparent way right behind us here on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. So it may take take a while for the stock to open for the very first time, maybe up to two to three hours, uh, but we want, we want to focus on making sure they have a smooth and orderly entrance to the market. Did this idea of not having the traditional IPO, but a direct listing instead, did that idea come from a conversation between companies and the NYSE, or did the NYSE come up with this, quote, new product to sell? Well, we've always, we've always had varieties of the direct listings, whether it be an existing company spinning off a new publicly traded entity, a company emerging from the over-the-counter markets to the main markets, but a company of this caliber and this profile, this is the second time. The first one was Spotify, and that's who really pioneered this process along with the exchange. What are the benefits for companies to, to make their public debut this way? I, I understand it's less pricey and et cetera. Go through, walk us through some of that. There are numerous benefits, and, and it really depends on what the objective of the company going public is. Uh, but generally speaking, because you're not selling shares to the marketplace, broader market conditions matter a little bit less than they would in a normal IPO, and the correlation between volatility, market volatility and IPO activity is about negative one. So being able to eliminate that risk from the marketplace allows these companies to come to market on their own timing. But what challenges are there for companies going public this way? Well, there are a lot of challenges. Number one is making sure that you have distribution of the shares, that you have liquidity on day one of your listing. Um, in a traditional IPO, you have underwriters that are placing or allocating shares with a lot of investors. Here, you have no underwriters, no stabilization agent. It's a different type of listing. Right, so it's more open to volatility. It, in theory, it could be. Uh, walk with me about competition. Look, the NYSE and the NASDAQ, they compete to get listings. And if you look at the numbers, the NASDAQ has done pretty well year to date. 78% win rate with these IPOs, uh, with 83 IPOs year to date. The NYSE, 23 IPOs year to date. Is this why this direct listing has begun here at the NYSE to attract companies to offer something different that the NASDAQ doesn't offer? Well, the greatest companies in the world select the New York Stock Exchange. In fact, if you look back over the past five years alone, 75 percent of the technology IPO proceeds, so the money raised by technology IPOs, have been raised on the New York Stock Exchange. And if we look at the 25 largest IPOs in history, the ones that really have an impact on the way we live, those companies that have an impact on the way we live and work, 24 out of 25 have selected the NYC. So we're, uh, uh, we're, we're confident in our model and the, what we offer our clients. I know that you said that um, this isn't going to replace the traditional IPO method, but this could be uh, something that really attracts companies. Do you see maybe this even being a growing trend? especially with tech companies? Well, we've had a number of inbound inquiries about uh, about the direct listing. And so from some, it's from companies that would fit the profile uh, of a company that would qualify for a direct listing. But it's also from others, uh, intermediaries like venture capital firms, law firms, who just want to get smarter on the process. Okay, John Tuttle, great talking with you. Congratulations. We await uh, the moment of that public debut for Slack. Great having you here. Thank you so much. It's going to be an exciting morning. It, it will be. Okay, still to come, we get Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan's take on fears of a recession our exclusive interview with him just ahead. boardroom brief, the wife of former Nissan and Renault chairman Carlos Ghosn is speaking out. Carol Ghosn tells CNN she believes her husband cannot get a fair trial in Japan. She also says French authorities threw him under the bus in pursuit of a merger between Renault and Nissan.
My husband was a victim of a corporate coup by a few Nissan executives, and they have conspired with the METI, the Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry in Japan, in order to stop the merger. They thought the best way to do it was to arrest my husband. CNN has asked the Japanese Justice Ministry for a response to Mrs. Ghosn's claim. Officials there said this, we would like to refrain from making comment on a specific case. And you can watch the full interview with Carol Ghosn on Quest Means Business. That's coming up at 3 p.m. in New York, 8 p.m. London time. We know Nissan are considering teaming up with Apple's Waymo to develop self-driving vehicles. The agreement would be limited to France and Japan, but could be expanded into other markets. YouTube is considering changes to the way it deals with children's content. The company has come under fire for its handling of videos targeting children amid concerns that its software could lead young viewers from safe content to violent or disturbing material. Some reassuring words coming back, coming from the Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan. He says the soft patch in the U.S. economy is unlikely to turn into a full-blown recession. That's what he told our Matt Egan when he sat down with the chief executive. Listen to this. Do you see the likelihood of a recession by the end of 2020 higher than you did a year ago? Well, I think. The, the uncertainty around that question is more what's causing the debate than it is the finality that, that people see it. So what we see, we have to back up. We, we know what we see so far. So year to date through last Friday, uh, the Bank of America consumer base has spent $1.3 trillion. That's up 5.5% versus last year, which is up 8.5% from the year before. So that's a tall order to keep the growth going. So it's decelerating. Yeah, it, it's decelerating, but it's consistent more with where it was in 16 and 17 before the, the, the benefits of the tax cuts the consumers got and more spending took place. It's back to the levels it is consistent with 2.5% two, two growth. So if you think about it, the, the idea is it's slowing down. That's what people predict. The question is, is it going to slow down and, and level off, or is it going to slow down and keep going? We don't see anything that, that says it's not going to slow down and keep and level off. But we'll find out as we move through the quarters. So you said the economy is expected to slow down. Has the chance of a 2020 recession, in your mind, gone up? Not really, because you know, we are we we are not seeing a kind of activity that would give rise to an actual negative quarters of growth. That people talk about recession, they confuse it with slowing down. The economy was predicted by everybody last year to slow down. There was nobody saying 19 was going to be bigger than 18, including ourselves. That's coming true. The reality is that we feel we feel good about the economy. What we see in the activity are the uncertainties out there. Sure, are the trade trade issues, uh, Brexit, what, what will happen to Europe? Will Europe slow down more? It's slowed down a little bit more. The uncertainties around those are all real, but they're all against positive numbers becoming less positive numbers. Nobody's predicting real slowdowns at this point. We uh, get ready to end the show. I want to keep an eye on the markets. We are watching uh, stocks rally. The Dow up more than 200 points as the market reacts to the Fed, dropping a big hint that a rate cut could come sometime this year. We're also keeping a close eye on the Slack trading post. Uh, Slack expected to go public, make its public debut within the next few hours, uh, not using a traditional approach, but in a direct listing. That's it for the show. Thanks for watching. I'm Allison Kosick. iDesk with Robin Curnow starts after this short break. We all do things our own way, and since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.